Oh, thank you. Thank you, Zach. Hey, it's great to be back up here. Um, Boy, isn't it great that all that time we spent praying for a pastor that God had Darren in mind? And I think he's just done a great job. And what a blessing Darren's been. Uh, We had lunch last week, and I was so impressed with his heart. I think his preaching is phenomenal. Um, some Some call him a young Tim Yohoff. You know, um, not many, mostly me. Um, I want to talk about something I've been thinking about for 20 years um, and then have just recently written about it in a new book that's come out called Winsome Persuasion. Uh, We have a lot of work to do as Christian communicators. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done and we are slowly being labeled as hate mongers, as we're the problem with the culture war. We're the ones who are stirring things up and that there's a lot of people who'd like to silence us. And we need to think long and hard about how to counteract this. Uh, How many of you have ever been booed before? Officially booed. A couple people. It's an odd feeling. It really is. Um, On three, everybody boo. One, two, three. It's a horrible feeling. And so I was at the University of West Virginia. I was brought in by Campus Crusade for Christ. I'm on a panel of religious diversity. There's me representing Christianity. There's a Buddhist monk. There's a a Muslim cleric. There is a a Jewish rabbi. There's a, a, a mystic. And there's a man dying of AIDS. I'm not sure why he was on the panel, but he's there. There's me. And we're talking about all the commonalities. We're having a good time. It's, it's going well because we were there to talk about appreciation of religion and spirituality, which is great. During the Q&A, a person stands up, first person during Q&A, points to me and says, uh, you're not telling us the truth. I used to be a Christian. And I was thinking, oh, man, this is not going to go well. And he goes, you're not telling us the truth. You think Jesus is the only way to get to God. You think the Bible is God's word, not the Quran, not the Bhagavad Gita. And to make it worse, you believe that if I don't believe the way you believe, I'll be eternally separated from God. There was a gasp from the audience. They were like, no, not Tim. We like him. And I just look, I used every communication strategy I could think of. But at the end of the day, you have to let Jesus be Jesus. At the end of the day, you got to let him say what he said. So I simply said, listen, there are things Jesus said. There are things he believed about himself. And he believed that he was God. He believed that salvation was through him and him alone. Not that there isn't value in other religions. Well, they'd never even heard that part because they were booing at that part. The moderator did not help me out whatsoever. She was mad at me. So every question was directed towards me. The next morning, the Campus Crusade for Christ uh, staff member who brought me in, that I have not spoken to since, brought me in, uh, sent me the campus newspaper, the cover of it that said, can you imagine in a time of diversity, in a time of pluralism, you bring in somebody who would dare say that his religion was better than any other religion? I never said better, but I said, listen, there's truth to some of this or there's not. That kind of feeling is what we're going to experience more as Christians today. 
And, and, and that was uh, 20 years ago that that happened. But that sentiment has not gone away. I want you to watch a very interesting clip. This is a Wheaton graduate. Uh, Wheaton is one of the great, uh, on the East Coast, it's one of the premier Christian institutions really in the world. It's a little bit below Biola, but it's great. Um, and he has been nominated for pre- by President Trump for this financial sector thing, so it needs approval. Well, here is um, Bernie Sanders grilling him on a very interesting issue. So let's watch a little bit of this. There... Um... They're letter states, and I quote, we write to express our deep concerns about the nomination of Russell Vogt to the position of Deputy Director of the White House Office of Management and Budget. Mr. Vogt has denigrated American Muslims and the Muslim faith. His writings demonstrate a clear hostility to religious pluralism and freedom that disqualify him for any appointment, including that of Deputy Director of the OD. So, for the record. In the piece that I referred to that you wrote for a publication called Resurgent, you wrote, Muslim, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. End of quote. Do you believe, do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic? Absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian, and I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. Uh, That post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And again, I apologize. I do forgive me. We just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? Again, Senator, I'm a Christian and I wrote that piece. Well, what does that say? The statement of faith. I understand that. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand condemned too? Senator, I'm a Christian. I I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment... Do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity. Okay, and let's respect, stop it there. Let's stop it there. Regardless of their religious um, beliefs. I love that I phrase he sticks in. Thank you so much for probing this area. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> But listen, this is not condemnation of one political party over another, and it's not a combination even of Bernie Sanders. It's showing that there is a bias towards conservative Christians. There is a bias if you're willing to say, listen, I'm sorry, I believe what the New Testament says, and I believe that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And I believe when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. I mean, those are radical statements, but we have to hold to them. So what do we do with that? Well, part of that is we just embrace the reality that there are going to be some people who hate us simply because of what we believe. Look at what Jesus said. Very interesting. Jesus said, you will be hated by all because of my name. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And now listen, I absolutely believe that we need to be civil, kind-hearted, good neighbors, but there's going to be a group of people who are going to hate us because they hate Christ and they hate the idea of absolute truth is just offensive to them. But what's happened is over time, we have developed a bad reputation. Not just a bad reputation for what we believe, but how we have acted 
towards people. Barna Research has done a good job asking non-Christian 20-somethings, if you had to describe conservative Christians using one word, what would be the word that you would use? Here are the most common words. We're hateful. We uh, hate gays. We are anti-intellectual. We're incivil. We're unhospitable. Two uh, sociologists from UNC Chapel Hill picked one word to describe conservative Christians. Mean. You are mean-spirited people. That's our reputation. Now, a, a, a term has arisen from Christian scholars studying the opinion of Americans, and the term that has arisen is called Christian phobia, which means an unreasonable hatred or anger towards Christians. See, our our stereotype is that we don't care about people, that we are the problems of the culture war. You know, Aristotle said this. Aristotle said the most persuasive factor, factor, factor about a person is your reputation heading into the conversation. What people already think about you heading into the conversation really is the most persuasive thing about you. So if you're going to talk to a daughter, somebody within your family, a coworker, a neighbor, what they already think about you is incredibly powerful. And if what we're seeing, national trends, being a conservative Christian means they do not think highly of you. They think that you're hateful, that you're intolerant. I read a book by Philip Yancey. Fascinating book called What's So Amazing About Grace. In it, he shares a story of a Christian social worker who's dealing with a woman who's down and out. She's a prostitute who has a two-year-old daughter. And tragically, I won't go into any detail whatsoever, is she not only sells herself, but she sells her daughter out as well for her cocaine habit. So here you have a Christian social worker talking to her, and he does not know what to say. He finally says, well, did you ever consider going to the church for help? She literally laughs in his face and says, why would I want to go to the church? I already felt bad about myself. So Yancey summarizes it this way in his book. What struck me about my friend's story is that women, much like this prostitute, fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? Isn't it interesting that Jesus got the moniker friend of sinners? People flocked to him, the down and out, the sinful, and he welcomed them. So what we need to do is we got to flip the script. We've got to change our reputation, what's out there today. Now, we could argue all day long whether it's a fair reputation that we've gotten, but we, we have it, and we need to kind of flip the script on how to do it. Now, here's what I propose this morning. In the book, Winsome Persuasion, and again, I'm going to give you a very broad answer to this. Uh, tonight at 6 o'clock in the chapel, Dr. Langer, I wrote the book with Dr. Langer. He teaches at Biola, one of the sharpest thinkers I know. We co-wrote this book together. I'm going to give you a very broad answer, and then at 6 o'clock we're going to talk about how do you actually have difficult conversations with people when you get to the brass tacks. So here's what I think needs to happen. We've got to change our reputation. Well, to do that, let's go back in time to Antioch where Christians gained the moniker Christian, where we actually got our label, and let's see what they were known for, and maybe we can return to that. So how do we change our reputation? Let's go back to Antioch. 
Now, this term Christian is very interesting. It is not the dominant label that Christians use for each other. Um, The most common term for Christians in the New Testament would be saints or disciples. The term is only used three times in the Bible, twice in the book of Acts, once in 1 Peter. Uh, That ending, I-A-N, if you say somebody's a Christian, means that you're in the family of that person. You're in that person's group. Now, let's take a look at what Luke has to say in Acts 11. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, let's draw some observations from this passage. Antioch was a mess. Antioch was a fortress city, which meant it had walls surrounding the cities. They couldn't expand. They had to go up. Um, So it, it was in livable conditions. They lived in filth. They lived literally on top of each other. Uh, Here's what we know. That by the end of the first century, Antioch had a population of about 150,000. Its population density would be roughly 75,000 inhabitants per square mile. Initially, it was founded as a fortress city. Now, to put this in context, Chicago, their population density, 21 inhabitants per acre. New York, 27 per acre. Antioch crushed that. Antioch was referred to as all the world in one city. It was incredibly diverse, but they did not get along well with each other. People were divided and separated according to different ethnic and religious groups. But the living situation was horrible, and this is where the new Christians came to minister to these people. Notice some things that Luke draw our attention to. One, they were scattered by persecution. That's why Christians went to Antioch. See, sometimes we want to pray for protection. That's our highest value. God, protect us from persecution. Um, Protect EV Free Church from those who would want to greatly inhibit our freedom to say things. Biola University is in tough times because there's certain individuals that really want to severely limit what Biola University can do and the funding that we would get. Our greatest prayer, of course, is for protection. I love my job at Biola. I want to stay there. I don't want to have to go back to modeling, right? I, <clears throat> I hated being objectified, right? I love my job. Isn't it interesting that God allows his children to be persecuted? Why? Because it sends them out in every direction. Men and women, I believe the next great battle in this country is religious freedom. That's the next big target for us in this country. And Canada is a test case that religious freedom can be taken away. So here, that's the next big battle. But if we lose that battle, I think God will redeem it. I think he could use it in really interesting ways. We'd have to go underground. But here's this church 
that is going to be planted in Antioch because God did not protect his children from persecution. Right? Notice the second thing in this passage. The evangelists were never named. I love that. We know about Barnabas, right? He comes from the church in Jerusalem. But the original evangelists who do amazing things in Antioch are never named. I I love that. You're not looking for headlines when you serve God, right? And God knew who these people were. God knows every time you have a hard conversation with a person. God hears every prayer you utter for that family member, that non-Christian neighbor, that non-Christian coworker. Nobody else may be aware of what you've done to love people, but God is aware. God sees it all, and he's your audience. So I love the fact that Luke, maybe Luke didn't even know who the original evangelists were, but he knew about Barnabas. Barnabas, when he gets there, he sees the grace of God everywhere and that they have remained true to the Lord. We're going to explain that in a second. That's where they first were called Christians. Now, um, those of you who love to read Bible commentaries, you'll know that I'm kind of stepping on some toes when I make the argument that I think Christians was not a derogatory term because the standard thinking among many theologians is that the term Christian was overly negative. That's why it was given to these early believers in Antioch. I'm going to make the argument that I don't think that's a persuasive argument. It's mostly the argument from silence. It's mostly the argument that if Christians was a positive term, why was it not used? Why didn't the Christians use it? We call that an argument from silence. I think there's more evidence on the side that we know what they did in Antioch and it was positive and it was a sign of begrudging respect. I could be wrong, but I I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this was a good term. And I'll later quote a a scholar who I really appreciate that I think kind of sides with that, with me. That's why I appreciate him. So as Barnabas got there, he saw evidence of God's grace and that they had remained true to the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, we know what he means by that. So here's the funny thing about students. All of them wig out when the midterm comes. All of them just like freak out. Some of you are getting sweaty palms because I just said the word midterm, right? You're, You're having flashbacks. So when midterm comes, they ask the question every professor gets everywhere. What's going to be on the test? Now, imagine I said to them, well, of everything I said to you, here are the two most important things. What do you think they would do? They'd write that down in a heartbeat. They'd tattoo that on their arms, right? Well, Jesus, when being pressed by Pharisees, says, here are the two greatest commandments, right? So here's what Jesus says. Uh, So he's being asked, we won't get into the detail of why he's being asked this, it doesn't really matter. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This is what Jesus says. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. See, men and women, God wants you to fall more in love with him. God wants you to love him with your mind. He wants you to love him with your soul, with all your strength. I mean, we could spend the rest of the morning talking about that, right? Where is God in your priority? I'm about to test for my red belt in Shaolin Kung Fu. This has been a three and a half, four year journey. I've already flunked my red belt test once. They told me there are no mistakes whatsoever. I was 98% done with my test. 98% percent done. I actually had a thought go through my mind. I think I'm doing well. And then I made my mistake. 
And the instructor said, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, man. Red is one below black. You can do some things poorly. You can't make a mistake. You made a mistake. And I did. I knew it. So now I've been redoubling my efforts. And next week, I mean, I've been training like a madman. So I hate reading passages like this. I don't think Jesus is against martial arts or kung fu. But where am I in your schedule? When you have this game plan of trying to get a black belt, what's your game plan for falling more deeply in love with me? If I were to look at your schedule, where do you spend your time and energy? Where does it go? Right? I think each one of us needs to take him serious. when he says, listen, here's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Right? Oh, let's move on. Okay, but it doesn't get better. He then says this. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, isn't that interesting? The second is like the first. But it's not. The first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Right? The second is love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. The second is like the first. Do not miss that. Let me say this this morning. The number one way we love God is with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor. As you love your neighbor, you are in essence loving God. You're loving people made in God's image. So if you want to know deeply what the love of God is like, Jesus says, I want you to love your neighbor. As you love your neighbor, it is going to unlock in unbelievable ways uh, an ability to experience God's love. You will get to know God's love in a powerful way when you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's what the church needs to do. So when Barnabas shows up at Antioch, he says two things. I saw the grace of God everywhere. And you remained true to the Lord. Right? So what do we know? We know that they did neighbor love in Antioch. Now, specifically, what would that look like? Well, when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's actually quoting Leviticus. So let's go to Leviticus, where we actually get details of what neighbor love looks like. One, live generously towards the poor and the alien. Men and women, God loves the outcast. He loves the outcast. So when we look at our surrounding communities, when you look at work, when you look at your family, who's the outcast at the place that you work? Who's the outcast that at lunch nobody sits with this person? In our neighborhood, who's the outcast? Who's the person that you don't have time for? And God says, listen, neighbor love is living generously towards the poor and the outcast, the alien. God is absolutely delighted when you go and sit down that person that nobody else gives the time of day to that person. He's absolutely delighted when you stop and there's a homeless person. He's delighted when there's people within a community that nobody cares about. And you stop and you spend time with that person. Not only are you exhibiting neighbor love, you are experiencing God's love in a very unique way. Number two, do not be deceptive in dealings with people. Do not oppress, rob, or exploit the poor by paying unfair wages. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Now, if you're in Old Testament times and you are deaf, 
or you are blind, you are worthless in the Old Testament. What are you supposed to do? What, how can you contribute to the community? And so uh, Leviticus says, that's the people I want you to attend to. I want you to go to the people who can't offer you anything. They're the outcasts. So men and women, we're starting to have a homeless problem in Fullerton. Right? We're having homeless communities pop up. If you're on the bike path, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So what does the church do? I think we go to them. I think we minister. And by the way, we can talk about solutions to this issue, which is becoming a problem. But first, we respond with compassion. We reach out to people that other people have no time or energy for. Next, do not slander others. How we talk about people privately is how we treat them publicly. I think that's uh, true. Do not hate your brother. We can disagree with others. We hate no one. Do not seek revenge or hold a grudge, but extend forgiveness. This is craziness. I love what Peter says in the New Testament. Peter says, when insulted, I want you to give a blessing instead. Think about that. He's preparing the church for Nero's persecutions. Jesus says, when you're slapped across the face, turn the other cheek. Somebody says, go a mile, go two. That's radical. That's going to start to change reputations. If we love our neighbors this way, people are going to say, listen, I don't agree with those Christians say. I don't buy what they're saying, but I got to tell you, when we were hurting, when our our group went through some tough times, you know who showed up? Evie Free Fullerton showed up. Right? I love that we do love Fullerton and that it's kind of become this grassroots movement, right? That now other people are jumping in on it. Hey, we sit and say, we're for everybody. We care about everybody within our community. Paul got that. Look what he says to the church at Rome in chapter 13. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So are we good neighbors to people? Are you a good neighbor to the people in your neighborhood? Or do you just kind of cocoon yourself? As you look around your neighborhood, do you know what's happening in each house? Do you know the struggles, how you can maybe step in and help people? Boy, don't pray that prayer. Do not pray the prayer. God, show me what's happening in this neighborhood and let me respond. It'll be pretty remarkable how God starts to let you know what's happening in different parts of your neighborhood. Right? The place that you work, do you know what's happening in the lives of different individuals? That's what it means to be a good neighbor. Uh, here's what Rodney Stark said. He wrote an interesting book called The Rise of Christianity. It's a study of how the church exploded from a sociological standpoint. This is what he concludes. Since Antioch suffered acutely from all these urban problems, it was an acute need of solutions. No wonder the early Christian missionaries were so warmly received in the city. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. When the Christians showed up, things got better. Best way to judge this church is if EV Free, for whatever reason, had to close down tomorrow, would the community notice? Would the community go, whoa, 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 we can't lose EV Free. Oh my gosh, they do this. They, we can always count on them for clothes for the poor, for blood drives, for this. They, we can't lose EV Free. 
Or would they just barely even notice that Evie Free closed its doors? I think that's a litmus test of whether we're doing neighbor love. Okay, how do we do modern neighbor love? Well, it's not just seeing our neighbors, but being compassionate towards our neighbors. It's not just recognizing them, but also ministering to them. Here are a couple of thoughts. Compassion is rooted in caring for others. Uh, look what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 1. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The word sorrow can be translated as pain, torment, or grief. And is often used of persons in mourning. Paul had unceasing grief for Jewish brethren who did not know Christ. He went to bed thinking about them. He woke up thinking about them. Later, he talks about how he would give up his salvation for his Jewish brethren. That they could come to faith. Have you ever heard a person weep out loud? Have you ever seen a person weep? I've only seen it once in public. In North Carolina, where we're from, in our church, a man got up, he's a missionary, and was sharing about Africans who didn't know Christ and lost it. I mean lost it. I've gotten emotional speaking before, but this man lost it. His chest was heaving, he's weeping. The pastor had to walk up and escort him off the stage. He could not pull it back together. And I'm sitting in the congregation watching this, and man, the Holy Spirit said to me, Tim Yohoff, have you ever wept for somebody who doesn't know Christ? And the answer is no. Now why? That's an interesting question. Why? And I honestly don't know the answer to that question. I don't. People know whether they're cared for. They know whether they're loved. We call this emotional contagion, right? Um, The emotions you have for a person bleed out and the other person picks up on it subconsciously. This This is Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, okay? So if you like a person, we call it getting a good vibe from that person. By the way, conversely, you get a bad vibe from a person. We all feel that. So in the community, people get a vibe how Christians feel about them. Do they love me? Are they concerned for us? And we need first to change our hearts towards non-Christians. Do we love them and are we concerned? By the way, the very first thing is to simply be honest before God. I love what C.S. Lewis said. Do not pray what's supposed to be in you. Pray what's in you. I love that. I love saying to God, God, okay, I know I'm supposed to love people made in your image. And I got to be honest with you, I don't. I, I, I don't. Not to the extent that I have unceasing sorrow in my heart, so change my heart. And that's a process. I love what Daniel Taylor says. He's a very uh, insightful Christian writer. He says this, If you are loved, you generally know it. And you know it in a great part by how someone acts towards you. The simple fact is that the people whose behavior we believe is sinful do not report that they feel loved or anything close to it. Quite the opposite. If Barna research is true, then non-Christians feel hated by the church. Certainly the gay community feels that way, and certainly the transgendered community feels hated by us. I wonder if Jesus would just shake his head. Hello, I was the friend of sinners. What are you guys doing that there's no room for people who are transgendered. 
that there's no room for people who are struggling deeply with sin. I mean, in the book, uh, we take a look at Jesus' table fellowship, right? Jesus sat, and most of these were outside. He sat with people that the religious community, it blew their minds that Jesus would publicly sit with these people. You know, with my students, we do a, a thought exercise. I sit down with my students and I say, okay, let's modernize this. Jesus is sitting at a table outside and you walk past. Who's at the table that even you shake your head and say, no way, no way, no way. I get it. I get hanging out with people. I get hanging out with sinners. Not that person. Jesus, you can't be with that person. And I force my students to name who's sitting at that table. And I got to tell you, Jesus hung out with them. I mean, the Pharisees were livid that he would do that and shake their head. And Jesus said, I'm sorry. I don't care what you think. These are the people who need me. And I'm going to associate with them. And you better get used to it. And you better do it. And I got to tell you, the American church has not been good at that. There are a lot of people who don't feel comfortable in our churches today. And I think Jesus is saying, I think we might need to reevaluate whether the stereotype at certain places is true of us. Compassion includes empathy. When you sympathize, the confusion, joy, or pain belongs to another person. When you empathize, it temporarily becomes your pain. You imagine seeing the world through the eyes of this person. So we have people in Sacramento who um, are not thrilled with the position Biola takes on certain issues. And they have been thinking of ways that, um, to limit the funding of a Biola university unless we change our position. Hello, we've been here 108 years. There's just certain things we're not changing our position on, right? But, but we, are, we have felt the heat, and it's not gone away. It's just we have, we're in a temporary reprieve. Now, I get kind of mad when I hear this, right? I know Biola. I know the leadership of Biola. They're some of the most kind-hearted, godly people I know. And to think that people think that we're like, like the worst of the worst is really troublesome to me. But that's not empathy. That's me getting mad. Empathy would be, but why do they believe that of Biola University? So here's an interesting book. The book is called Rescuing Jesus. Um, It's written by a woman who went around to Biola University. She went to Azusa. She went to Wheaton. And she interviewed students. Now, we don't know who those students are. She never identifies who they are in the book. And that's good research. You have to protect the people you interview. But in it, you hear horrific stories. And Biola is all over this book. Students saying, I'm same-sex attracted, I'm transgendered, I'm gay, and I feel hated on this campus. I feel marginalized. I feel verbally abused. I feel, well, that's heartbreaking. So if people in Sacramento, all they know about Biola University comes from that book, Rescuing Jesus, I would be mad. If I thought that was happening to gay students on a religious campus, I'd shut that campus down. Right? That's empathy. Stopping long enough to say, how does this person see it? Even though I'm going to disagree with it, but I need to know how you see the family disagreement. How you see the disagreement at work. 
why neighbors are angry at each other. I need to stop long enough to see the world through your perspective and experience that. We're going to talk more about how to do that tonight at 6 o'clock. But psychologists say that's probably the most advanced interpersonal skill that you can have. Is to stop long enough to see the world through the eyes of another person. It doesn't mean I'm condoning it. I just want to know what it feels like to be you. Based on the information that you have. Very important that we do that. Compassion entails... Oh, this is interesting. Compassion entails confronting the uncompassionate among us. Look what Peter says. Finally, all of you live at harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and be humble. Men and women, how we talk to each other is how we treat each other. And it's time for us to clean house. It's time for us to say, hey, we're all brothers and sisters, so you can't say certain things about individuals in my presence. I'm just not going to let you do it anymore, right? You can disagree with the senior pastor. You can disagree with elders. You can disagree with the person in church. Of course you can. But how you talk about them needs to be reflective of who Jesus is, right? This is the book of Proverbs. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. And then how we talk about non-Christians needs to get cleaned up in our congregation. Are we compassionate towards those who don't know Christ? Are we compassionate towards our enemies? Man, this is hard, right? I was speaking at a conference. I was talking about the transgender community. The transgender community is one of the most at-risk communities in our country. 40% suicide rates. 40% attempted or actual, right? So I'm at a conference and I'm talking about compassion. And during a break, I'm sitting, I don't know any of these guys. We're having a break. I'm talking like five guys. And one pastor says, oh, I know how to settle the bathroom issue. Let's have three bathrooms. He, she, it. And I looked at this guy. I didn't know him. I had a pit in my stomach. I said, hey, can I say something brother to brother? You can't refer to a person made in God's image as it. And he looked at me and said, oh, come on, I'm just kidding. I said, I think that makes it worse. I've not been invited back to that conference. <laughs> you know. but, th- but that's awkward. I mean, you feel like, who am I? I'm going to be holier than thou. I'm going to call people on the carpet. Well, yeah, I think we start to do that. In a loving way, right? We don't want to be self-righteous. And again, we own our own mistakes, things that we've laughed at, we shouldn't laugh at. But there comes a time where we just have to say, listen, I- You can't talk about people that way. And in our book, Winsome Persuasion, unfortunately, we have documented a lot of uncharitable descriptions of feminists, atheists, postmoderns, transgendered, gay community. The way we talk about these individuals is brutal. And they know it. By the way, they do it to us. I did all my education at secular universities, all of it. And I've heard how people talk about us. We don't return. Remember? We give a blessing instead of an insult. That's what we do. It's hard. This incivility, we're at a crucial time in our country. I really believe this is true. And it's not just me saying this. Communication scholars everywhere are saying this. The left and the right both agree. We can't continue on the trajectory we're on as Americans. We have lost the ability to talk to each other. In a time when we need to talk to each other about immigration, about health care, about social issues, we've lost the ability to talk to each other. And it's gotten dangerous. 
What's happened in Charleston is a wake-up call to all of us. And by the way, it's not the only wake-up call. There's been a bunch of them. And so today, people are saying, this incivility cannot continue as Americans. A a new national study just came out about three, four weeks ago. 69% of Americans believe incivility is a major problem. 75% believe that it's reached crisis proportions. We're in an incivility crisis in our country today. That's a great opportunity for us. It's a great opportunity for us to stand up and speak the truth and do it in love. To be respectful, to have civility. And we've got to find out ways of doing that. We're going to argue tonight that the thing we need to reclaim as Christians is humility. It's not going to be popular. Christians do not celebrate humility. We celebrate, I know God's truth and I'm utterly committed to God's truth and anything else is compromised. Well, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about humility. And I think we need to be humble as we enter into some of these conversations. We need to learn. And tonight, we're going to give you a diagnostic test of 10 questions to see how humble you are. It's a brutal test. I think I probably just thinned out the ranks for tonight's attendance. It's pretty brutal. But we need to step back and say, are we humble? Are we arrogant in a conversation? Who wants to have a conversation with an arrogant person? You know, I wrote a book a couple years ago called Authentic Communication. As I was being interviewed on radio programs by Christian um, hosts, they would say, so you called your book Authentic Communication? Define authentic. Great question. I said, okay, authentic means heading into the conversation, you've not already settled everything. Authentic means this is a dialogue, not a monologue. And authentic means I listen as much as I speak. And authentic means I could be wrong. This one host said to me on a national program, he said, well, then I think as Christians, we don't have very many authentic conversations. I said, you know what? Sadly, I think you're right. I think that's true. We're poor communicators. We're poor conversationalists. Christians, we are. Now, where to start? Well, obviously, buy our book. But no, where to start? We need to answer some questions. First question, how do we start a conversation? How do I start a conversation with a family member, with a coworker, with somebody in my neighborhood that has a chance of being productive? I mean, if we're going to step in and talk about some really hard issues, all of us have had conversations that went south in what, two minutes? John Gottman, one of the top... uh, communication researchers calls it the critical startup. He said the first two minutes of a conversation set the tone for the entire conversation. How you start the conversation is how you're going to end the conversation. As Christians, we got to find ways to start this conversation that at least gives it a chance to breathe and gain momentum with a person that we know that we really disagree with. How do you do that? Good news, communication theorists have been thinking about this for a long time, and the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this issue. We'll tackle that tonight. How do we combat stereotypes? How do we turn around our really bad reputation? The cool news is it's been done. It's been done. Christians have turned around our reputation in the past. We have a bunch of examples from historical figures like St. Patrick, uh, Wilberforce, um, individuals like that that have actually turned around a bad reputation. It can be done. It takes a lot of work. Do we ever use our prophetic voice? Do we ever just say, sorry, this is wrong and the Bible says so? 
sorry. Right? I'm sorry that hurts your feelings, but this is how God defines X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I think we can use our prophetic voice. The problem is it's been our go-to voice for too long. Kind of like when you're traveling in another country and you don't know where the bathroom is. Right? You go, excuse me, where's the bathroom? And the person's like, right? You go, no, no, where's the bathroom? And we think today if we pump up the volume, we're going to be effective. I don't think that's true. I think it feeds into our negative stereotype. Lastly, can we rescue social media? No. Um, yes, I think we can. I think we can rescue social media. Uh, I've been challenged recently to go on Facebook, and I have trying to do some provocative stuff on Facebook. And for the most part, I've been very pleased with the results. I think we can use Instagram to change our reputation. I think we can use Twitter. I think now some of you need to get off. You are not ready to be on social media, man. You're a toddler and we're not handing you a Ferrari, okay? So, but we can get there and we, we, we interviewed a bunch of experts on so, social media to find out what to do and what not to do, okay? So, let me pray for us. Tonight, if you have time, um, six o'clock in the chapel, we're gonna uh, do a workshop, seminar, and then answer questions. But men and women... Uh, this unique moment in our country's history, things like Charleston, which is just tragic. I think Americans are ready for a change. We know it can't continue like this. And, and the stuff with North Korea is just frightening. I'm not putting all the blame on anybody. I'm saying this is frightening when we're talking about first strike options against North Korea. It, it, we live in a dangerous world and we've got to find a way as Christians to offer alternatives and I think our language is part of it. So let me end with some really good news. Don't miss one little phrase Luke uses for the church at Antioch. He says, and the Lord was with them. Men and women, what's the greatest hope of Biola University? The fact that the Lord's with us. What's the greatest hope of E.V. Free Fullerton? The Lord's with us. Right? There are some dark days ahead, but the Lord will be with us. And uh, we give compassion because we so richly experience compassion. I love Psalm 103. You have been crowned with God's compassion. Just like a father, the psalmist says, look at his children with compassion. God looks at us with compassion. So we give that compassion to our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we're humbled that... You love us and that you're compassionate, sympathetic towards us. And you ask us to love you by doing neighbor love. Help us to do that. It's hard when we feel attacked. It's hard when we're belittled, ridiculed. It's hard. But you say to bless instead of curse. We want to do that. Lord, thank you for Evie Free Fullerton that there are many ways I can think of how we do neighbor love well at this church. Thank you for the leadership that sees the value of doing that. So we do pray this in Jesus' name. We do it for his sake, for his glory. Amen. <laughs>